We're in the book of Acts and we're in chapter eight. And this is the story of Philip having a providential meeting with an Ethiopian eunuch. I know you studied this in Sunday school. Let's look at it now this morning, beginning in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azostus, and he passed through. He preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Great story, great narrative. One of the events happening in the early church recorded by Luke in the book that we call the Acts of the Apostles. The most important phrase in this whole passage is this one right here in verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Here is a New Testament evangelist preaching about Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the one who had been crucified, the one who had risen from the grave. And he's telling someone about Jesus by the use of the ancient Hebrew scriptures. The Hebrew scriptures were all the apostles had to preach Jesus Christ. The apostles didn't have a New Testament. 
Think about that. How do you witness? How do you preach Christ and Him crucified from nothing but the Hebrew Scriptures? Well, that's because, as you well know, the Lord had told His disciples that the Hebrew Scriptures spoke of Him. The whole point of the Pentateuch, the whole point of the prophets, the whole point of the writings, the Holy Scriptures, were to testify of Christ. And when Christ was with His disciples, He told them a lot of things about how the Old Testament was to be interpreted in light of His, Jesus' own person and His work among them. But he knew good and well they would not remember it all. And he knew good and well that their testimony concerning him was to be the New Testament gospel. And even though there was no New Testament scripture at that moment, the Lord told him how the New Testament would be written. And here's how it is. And he lays this out in John, in chapter 14, 15, and 16, we can glean. Jesus told his disciples when he was with them that the Holy Spirit, when he comes, and he's come now in Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will. And we see the Spirit operative in this passage, calling Philip to go down into Gaza. Philip was back in Jerusalem. All the apostles had taken a tour through Samaria and preached in all of the towns of Samaria, fulfilling what the Bible had said, the gospel would take its origin in Jerusalem, then move to Judea, then to Samaria, then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And today we're gonna to see that transition from Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. Philip, had been instructed by the Spirit of God to not stay in Jerusalem with the rest of the apostolic band, but to move on down south to take that well-known Roman road from Jerusalem over to the seacoast and then down to the town of Gaza, which is the Gaza Strip in our own day, the ancient land of the Philistines, and all the way down to uh, Egypt, and then moving down the Nile River, it went all the way down to the headwaters of the Nile River to Ethiopia and disappeared down into the hinterlands of the continent of Africa. And so the Lord sent Philip in that direction. To do what? To preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lord had said, you'll have material to preach. You'll have the whole Hebrew scriptures which testify of me, Jesus said, but then the Holy Spirit will guide and inspire. Listen to the things that the Lord said. When the Spirit comes, He will teach you all things. He will bring to remembrance all that I've said. Think of all the teaching of Christ that they had heard and probably forgotten that the Spirit brought to their remembrance. He will guide you into all truth. That's why we believe the New Testament Scriptures are the inspired Word of God and contain the message concerning Christ and they themselves are a living testimony of truth. 
That's why when we come to a, a book like Acts, we, we see that it stands the test of history and of geography. Sir William Ramsey, several generations ago, a great skeptic, decided to test the authenticity of the Gospel of Luke by just following through and seeing what it said about the cities and the Roman roads and about the oceans and the islands and all of the travels of St. Paul and others and wanted to see if it met the test of actual geography and history. And it did. Absolutely, it checked out. In fact, Sir William Ramsey was converted as a result of this kind of testimony. And countless scholars since have given us the archaeological and the, and the historical evidence of the truthfulness of the book of Acts. Well, if we can trust the scriptures in some of those areas, maybe we can trust it in some spiritual areas as well. It works both ways. He will not only can guide you into all truth, but the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin. That's an amazing thing. The worst possible scenario in the preaching of the gospel is nobody thinks they need it. <laughs> nobody sees their sinfulness. Nobody understands themselves to be condemned before a just and righteous God. Nobody understands the depth of their own sinfulness. Nobody understands the enslavement and the bondage of their will. They don't understand that the choices they make are inevitably the wrong choices. They don't understand that their sins condemn them to everlasting punishment in an eternal devil's hell. Somebody's got to convince them of their dire straits and their desperate need before they'll be open to hear a gospel. The good news is not good news unless you first heard some bad news. Unless you've heard the condemning sentence of the law. It says the soul that sins, it shall die. And one realizes that there is none righteous no, not one. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. And that all becomes personal. You realize, I have sinned. The gospel is for me because the gospel is for sinners. And I am one of those sinners. I qualify as a candidate to hear the call of the gospel. The scriptures, the Holy Spirit told us that, the, that when he comes, or Lord told us when the Holy Spirit came, that he would declare things to come. Prophecy. There would be a prophetic element to the New Testament scriptures that when he came, he would tell them of things that were to come to pass. Christ himself was a prophet. He talked about the days of 70 AD, about 40 years hence from the time he was speaking. And then he spoke of times in the end. And these Apostles would, under the guidance of the Spirit, they would prophesy. And when the apostles were done and dead, prophecy ceased. The gifts that God had given of miracles and signs and wonders and tongues and words of knowledge and the word gifts and all of that was to bring about a period of time in which those that had been eyewitnesses of the majesty of Christ could inscripturate it into the New Testament. Until then, all they had was the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And that's what they used to preach Christ. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit will also glorify me, glorify Christ, and declare me to you. Sounds like the Holy Spirit is bearing a very large burden 
to make sure that God's word and his truth goes forth. That's why the Holy Spirit was careful to take holy men of old and bear them along in their understanding so that they wrote the very words of God using their own language, using their own syntax, their own morphology, their own grammars, their own vocabularies. They wrote the very words of God, what the Lord wanted them to write. And that's what it's what the New Testament apostles were busy doing. And every book in the New Testament, as we pointed out last week, has apostolic testimony. It's either written by an apostle or someone that was an immediate associate of an apostle. All of Scripture is now by the inspiration of God. So now, Philip takes the Old Testament Scriptures and begins to talk to this Ethiopian eunuch about Christ. Now there's some interesting things here. You know me, I love to dig around in the background and I could fritter away our whole morning just giving you all kinds of interesting facts. But let me just sort of give you a few things to get the flavor of this guy. Uh, as he goes down to, to meet this person, he's in Gaza. This person has been on the road in his chariot for a while. I don't know how the Lord accelerated Philip's transportation to get him down there pretty quickly, but there's kind of the spirit of Elijah that's in this passage. The dynamics of the Lord spiritually moving him from place to place and catching him up and commanding him to go. You get, you get that Old Testament flavor of how God moved Ezekiel and, and other prophets around in the Old Testament. But anyway, whatever happened, Philip caught him. He caught him at the crossroads. He got him before he got to Gaza. He caught him along the, way, the road that came out of Jerusalem, the road that goes down the coast. And there he met up with him. A little bit about this guy. He was a eunuch. I'm not going to tell you what that means. I think you know what that means. But let me tell you why he was a eunuch. It's because he served Her Majesty, the Queen. The Queen Mother, the title of the Queen Mother of Ethiopia for many generations was Candace just like Pharaoh in Egypt and Caesar in Rome. It was Candace because the Ethiopian society was a matriarchal society and the supreme ruler of them in their particular country was a woman. She was the mother of the king. She got to be the queen because she bore a son. But the son was deemed to be the father of the son, the actual son in heaven. And he was a beyond uh, human uh, capacity. He was divine. So this, this boy was the king, but he was a divine creature according to their legend. And therefore, it was his mother that was the one who actually ruled in Ethiopia. Interesting mix of pagan religion and civil government. There's a, a sense in which uh, it didn't matter who the father was, the physical father, as long as the mother was known. And she ruled by right of that divine son that she had. And in this particular capacity, the eunuch served, and almost everybody that served either harems or in, in a queen's court were forced to become eunuchs. And they would then serve the matriarchy. And she, Candace, had the treasurer, the most important. I would think the most important person in your, in your realm would be your treasurer. Now, it may be your attorney general or maybe, I don't know who, but, it, but I like the treasurer, the person that controls the money. 
<laughs> and that's who this was. This was the exchequer of Ethiopia. But interesting thing about this fellow, he had gone to Jerusalem to worship. There was a strong heritage in the Old Testament that the sons of Jacob had migrated and intermarried with the women of Ethiopia. And there was a strong tradition that Ethiopia had always been considered itself some kind of descendant and some kind of king, of, of kinsman to the Jewish people. In fact, the sign of Ethiopia was the lion, a symbolic of the lion of the tribe of Judah. And this particular servant of the queen had gone to Jerusalem to worship and he was done with his worship time there and he was now on his way back home riding in this luxurious chariot coming across the heat of the desert on his way back home to the Nile Valley and back home to Ethiopia. Tradition tells us by the way that following his conversion which we read about this morning he went on to go back home to Ethiopia and become an evangelist. And Irenaeus said that he converted a large portion of the country to Christ in his preaching of the gospel. And that he went on to become the bishop of Ethiopia. And historically, one of the oldest Christian nations in the world is Ethiopia. The first formal nation in our Indo-European area to become a form was, was Armenia. But Ethiopia has always been a Christian nation. All through the years, very, very dominant until the rise and the, the uh, uh, in, uh, invasion of Islam into that area of that African continent. This is truly now beginning to move to the uttermost part of the world. But I'm a little bit ahead of my story. Let me take a couple of minutes here and just hit some salient features of what happened in their conversation. Philip, as he began to speak to this particular eunuch, he realized he was a God-fearer. He was one of those people like we'll learn about in Cornelius. He was a Gentile through and through, but he, he had an interest in the God of the Hebrews and the Holy Scriptures. And he had his own copy of the Scriptures, which was quite a privilege in those days. And as he was riding along, he was reading aloud which by the way, most reading in the ancient world was allowed. It was, it was a, kind of a mysterious and a remarkable thing that Ambrose read silently. His student Augustine was always surprised at how Ambrose could, could read silently. But he was reading aloud from the prophet of Isaiah, the second scroll. How do I know that? Because Isaiah was in two scrolls and he was reading from Isaiah 53. And he was reading from the great servant song. In Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 3, we have what we know as the servant song. And he was reading that. Well, Jesus Christ himself, during his days on earth, claimed to be several important figures of the Old Testament. He claimed to be, as we well know, the Davidic Messiah, the King of Israel. Jesus made claims about that in his life and in his ministry. And of course, he certainly was. He was descended from the house of David, and we're very familiar with that Christmas story. But he also claimed to be, Jesus did, to be the Son of Man, which is not a testimony to his humanity, but it is a, a, a picture that's taken from the book of Daniel, where this magnificent 
and wonderful person appears and does marvelous things and receives the glory and the power and the might and is a, a champion of, of world domination, not just being king of the Jews, but the king of the kings. And it's the son of man. And Jesus called himself the son of man. But another title that Jesus arrogated into himself was the title of servant. And in, in Mark, we find Jesus kind of tying these things together. He said, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And in that reference to himself as a servant, Jesus was speaking of his principal reason for coming. And that is that he might serve others by giving of himself as a ransom. This is speaking of his death. This is speaking of his atonement. This is telling us something about the death that Christ died. Paul said, Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. What scripture? Well, here's one, Isaiah 53. It tells us about the death Jesus died. And it tells about how he gave his life for many in Isaiah 53. Let me summarize it. If we, in the uh, good news class, we've been now for several months, as I teach them once a month, we've been studying through this particular uh, psalm. I mean, a passage, a song in Isaiah. But let me just summarize for you the death of Christ. This, this passage talks about the death that Christ died. But let me give you just a running description. I don't have time to explain what each word means. I think you'll catch most of it. This is the significance of the death of Christ. It was, first of all, a substitutionary death. He died for his people in their place. He died so they would not have to die that death. It was a sacrifice. That is, he gave himself over. It was a voluntary sacrifice. He yielded himself up. He was offered up. He willingly submitted. He, and that's what the passage here talks about. Like a sheep is led to the slaughter, like a lamb before the shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. That's a description of Jesus' trial before Pilate. And he was condemned. It says, in his humiliation, justice was denied him. The death of Christ was an unjust death as far as man's law is concerned. Who can describe his generation? And here's the summary statement. For his life is taken away from the earth. He gave up his life on the cross. We know Jesus said that he surrenders his spirit to the Lord. But that death was also propitiatory. That means it satisfied God. It says the chastisement of our peace was upon him. The punishment that brought us peace with God, reconciliation, the punishment that satisfied God, that placated God's wrath was the death of Christ. It was a redeeming and a ransoming purchase. That's what Jesus said. Jesus paid a price in order to ransom us from the, from the legal bondage we had, not from Satan, as some have theorized, but from the law of God. The law of God had a binding penalty upon us. Paul calls it the ordinances, the ordinances of the law that says the soul that sins, it shall die. It's binding on you. And Jesus' death freed you from the bondage, the condemnation, the penalty of the law that you had broken and that you had fallen short of.
free from the law, free from its condemnation. It's also an atoning death. That means it puts you right with God. The, uh, the scriptures say that my servant shall justify many, make them right with God because Christ suffered what he suffered. It was also penal in that it was a penalty. It was a penalty and a punishment. It was punitive. It was something that had to be inflicted in order for God's righteousness to be satisfied. God could have said, oh, forget about sin. It's no big deal. I'm a big God. I can take it. They've offended me, but it's no problem. No, God couldn't do that to his image bearer. He might have could have dismissed an armadillo or a kangaroo or a cockroach and said, well, that's just their nature. That's the way they are. He didn't do that with his own image. His own image had to be put right. It had to be justified. And Paul says it perfectly in his gospel. He says that Christ died in order that God may be just and the justifier of those who come to God by Christ, seeing he ever liveth. This is the, this is the gospel. This is the story. This is the death that Christ died. One interesting thing here as we conclude is Peter, I mean, as Philip preached to the Ethiopian, there's a verse that's not in your text. <laughs> and the reason it's not in there is most of the critical scholars say that it was added later. But it's verse 37. Did you look at your things? You notice you went, did you notice you skipped verse 37? Did you pay attention to those little tiny, tiny numbers in your, verse 37 is not in your text. And the reason it's not in your text is the better scholars say it probably wasn't in the original text. The textual critics conclude that. But let me tell you how the text reads. It's in the footnotes of your pew Bible. After Philip had explained to him about Christ and told him the good news about Jesus and they went down the road, they found a, a body of moving water, probably an oasis. And the Ethiopian asked a question, what's to hinder me from being baptized? And there's no answer given in the, in the text we have here, but somebody inserted, if it wasn't in the original, somebody inserted, and Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. That was the cry of the Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? And what was the answer? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart and you'll be saved. It's the same answer that Philip supposedly, <laughs> presumably, gave to the man. And the Ethiopian eunuch replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Not that baby boy back in Ethiopia that my queen bore. That's not the Son of God. The Son of God is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The, the eunuch made a profession of faith. And upon his profession of faith, he was baptized. Here's a believer. Here's someone hearing the gospel in all of its truth and hearing about Christ and believing it. You've got the New Testament where there's no doubt there's no mistake 
about the person and the work and the words and the teachings and the ministry of Jesus Christ. You don't have to go back to the figures and the symbols and the types and the, 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 the roles of Old Testament Hebrew Scripture. It's plain as it can be, open before you, the historical Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, risen, ascended, reigning, interceding. You have the Holy Spirit who has come and convicted you of your sins and shown you your need of salvation and brought to you Christ. He's declaring Christ to you. What's your excuse? The Old Testament prophet says there's no excuse for dying and going to hell. Why will you die, O Israel? God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What is holding you up? What is stopping you? Do you not have enough authority? Do you not have enough evidence? Do you not have enough faith? That's no problem. The Lord says, if you don't have the faith, ask for the faith. The faith he gives you is a gift from him and it's saving faith. I wish I had time to plead for a long time, but, but I know you know the gospel. You hear it clearly as the Ethiopian eunuch heard it. Come to Christ. Trust in Christ. Embrace him. Believe in him. Set him up as your all in all. Listen to him. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. 